Whether President Putin ordered it directly or whether it was done by members of the security services who assumed that they were doing something that he would like, he's really he's created the kind of system in which these attacks take place regularly with impunity. The number of opposition politicians, opposition journalists who have been killed in Russia over the past 12 to 14 years, really over the 20 20 years that Putin's been in power, without any real investigation or holding of anyone seriously to account for this, is a very, very clear signal to Russian society and those in society who would oppose Putin that there is a price to be paid for this. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonoela. And today we're deeply honored to have former Ambassador John Byerly with us. Ambassador Byerly, Andre and I got to know you um, a couple years back at the University of Michigan, where you came and talked to the Ford School about Russia. It, of course, has been a couple of years since then, and there's a lot that has occurred in and around Russia. So we're very excited to talk to you about these important issues. Uh, and just brief background on the ambassador. Uh, ambassador Byerly has had a distinguished career in the Foreign Service with crucial postings around the world, including as U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria and U.S. Ambassador to Russia. Uh, the ambassador served in Russia three times. He's advised Secretaries of State and has worked at the National Security Council on Russia and Eurasia. Uh, so given your vast experience, Ambassador, and your knowledge about Russia, we'd love to get your perspective on the country's domestic politics, its activities abroad, and the state of U.S.-Russia relations today. We couldn't think of a better guest to help us understand these complex topics. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and, of course, for your service to this country. Well, you're, you're welcome very much. I'm uh, happy to take part. And I must say, I love the name of the podcast, The Burn Bag, having uh, thrown more than a few uh, memos and uh, uh, other reports into the burn bag over the years. Uh, I was surprised that no one else had ever called the podcast The Burn Bag. Thank you, Ambassador. And so before we really start digging into the weeds of all of these policy questions, the questions around U.S.-Russia relations, uh, we wanted to start off more on a personal note, uh, discussing a family story with you that made you very popular with the Russian people while you were Ambassador. So your father was captured by the Nazis while serving in World War II. He remarkably escaped, and then he joined a Soviet battalion to continue to fight. First, we'd love for you to fill, sort of fill in some of the details on this incredible story and how it shaped your life and your tenor as ambassador to Russia. Yeah, thanks. This uh, story could have a podcast all of its own, so I'll try to be uh, brief on the details. Uh, my father's considered to be the only one of the few, perhaps, American GIs who fought in World War II with both the American army and the Soviet army against Hitler. He was a paratrooper with 101st Airborne Division, and he jumped into Normandy behind uh, the German lines the night before the D-Day landings on Omaha and Utah Beach, June 6, 1944. But he was captured by the Germans uh, fairly soon after he landed, a couple of days. And uh, he spent the next six months in a succession of prison camps being moved from uh, basically west to east as the Allies pushed the Germans across France and back into Germany. He uh, escaped once and was recaptured 
A few months later, he escaped again from a German POW camp and was recaptured a second time. The third time he escaped in January of 1945, he was in a camp uh, in what is now Poland and really located only about 30 or 40 miles from the advancing Red Army, which was moving on its final uh, attack towards Berlin. And my father escaped from the prison camp and went straight east, hoping to link up with uh, the Russians because the Russians were our allies and he knew he'd be in friendly hands. So he did manage to link up with a Soviet tank battalion, and uh, he proved he was an American by uh, basically giving them some Lucky Strike cigarettes. He spoke a little bit of Russian, not very much, but they uh, accepted him. Uh, but wanted to send him back uh, to a gathering point for POWs. And he said, no, I was uh, denied the chance to fight against the Russia, against the Germans. I've got a few scores to settle. So if it's all right with you, I'll just accompany you to Berlin. There was some discussion about this, but uh, they did allow him to kind of follow along with the uh, tank battalion. They actually gave him a, a Soviet uh, machine gun. and. Uh, he fought with them for a week or 10 days, liberated the camp that he had escaped from, uh, but then he was wounded in a German attack and evacuated to a Russian field hospital. He met in that field hospital Marshal uh, Georgi Zhukov, who was the Supreme Commander of Soviet forces, and Zhukov had heard that there was an American GI who'd been fighting with the Russians, and he walked up to my dad's bed. Uh, my dad was pretty banged up from uh, his uh, his uh, injuries and uh, asked him, as generals tend to do to sergeants, is there anything I can do for you? And uh, my father said, yeah, if you could give me some sort of document that would let me get to the American embassy, uh, I'm too banged up to fight anymore. It's probably time for me to go home. So Zhukov gave him a letter of transit. He used that letter to uh, hitch a ride on various co convoys and trains across Belarus and showed up in Moscow at the end of February 1945, turned himself in to the American embassy and uh, discovered that by uh, an incredible mistake, he had been erroneously reported killed in action 10 days after D-Day. So the Americans didn't exactly know who he was and they held him under house arrest for a couple of days until they were able to establish his bona fides. Uh, he was repatriated to the United States, and he actually celebrated uh, VE Day, Victory Day, uh, in a military hospital in Chicago, Illinois. So that's the story of my dad, his uh, incredible adventures, and the fact that he, as an American, had fought with the Soviets against Hitler obviously was uh, uh, was something that was of great interest to the Russian people and Russian officials. And when I uh, became ambassador, uh, I found many doors were open to me uh, to meet with high-ranking Russian officials who I maybe wouldn't have had the chance to meet with or certainly wouldn't have met as quickly as I did because they were simply interested in this story and wanted to hear more about it. Uh, so in essence, my father, I think, in a way, helped me become a more effective ambassador. Wow. I mean, yeah, on, on the one hand, that's truly an incredible story. And of course, on the other, the fact that it contributed 
to uh, your your experiences as ambassador is makes it even more of an incredible story. So thank you for sharing that. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. Um, but let's kind of dig into your experiences as ambassador. Of course, you served from 2008 to 2012, um, but we've since seen a lot of developments in Russia's domestic politics. You know, what we see is a talk about Russia's foreign policy, their foreign interventions in the U.S. and international media. Um, but I, I really think our listeners would benefit from from talking about what's happened domestically, right? Uh, while while you were serving as um, ambassador, President Putin was actually Prime Minister Putin, um, which, of course, he is now president once again after taking over the presidency in 2012. Um, w- would you mind kind of outlining for our listeners the evolution of Russia's domestic politics since 2012? Well, you're right. My uh, tenure as ambassador coincided with the sort of interregnum uh, that took place when Dmitry Medvedev, who had been prime minister under Putin uh, for his second term, uh, took over as president for the four years, uh, 2008 to 2012, because according to the Constitution, Putin was uh, unable to succeed himself. Uh, that interregnum lasted four years and Putin came back as president in 2012. That was uh, the year that I left uh, Moscow. I was actually out of the country when he was reelected and re-inaugurated president. But uh, you're right, Russian domestic politics have really undergone quite a, quite a change since the time that I was ambassador. Oh, and I would say three or, or four key ways. First of all, you've had a real reconsolidation of power under and around President Putin. And that culminated in the vote that we saw this past July 1st on some constitutional changes that really create the foundation for Putin now to be able to stay in power until 2036. Uh, When I left as ambassador, it was not clear, exactly clear uh, how Putin was going to manage the transition when he decided that he was going to come back into uh, the presidency. Uh, But I would say he did it with a vengeance, and he did it by strengthening the position of the conservative and nationalist forces that have always been kind of his uh, political base, the security services, the military, the Russian Orthodox Church, really the the forces of the status quo in Russia. And the strengthening of that position, I would say, has really come at the expense of uh, the weakening of the more reformist and the more pro-Western members of the elite, who under President Medvedev uh, were beginning to push for some changes which were being resisted by uh, the more conservative forces that I mentioned. Uh, At the same time, you've seen a real crackdown on dissent and protests. Uh, There was a feeling that Medvedev, when he was the president, had allowed these protests to gain strength, to get out of hand. And Putin made quite clear when he came back in 2012 that he was uh, not going to allow the kind of street protests, which had become a little more commonplace and a bit more accepted while Medvedev had been president. All all of this, I would say, in some amounts to a decision to to kind of maintain the status quo and to put all of uh, Russia's eggs in in the Putin basket for the foreseeable future. Uh, Putin 
maintains a popularity in Russia, but his popularity has dropped. It peaked at about 80%. Uh, a year and a half ago, it's down to actually under 60%, or was under 60% a bit uh, earlier before the election I referred to. And uh, his ability to maintain power and maintain the popularity that kind of underlies his uh, his claim on power will really depend on his ability to show the Russian people that he can give them the kind of economic prosperity that was the hallmark of his first eight years in power from 2000 to 2008, when Russian the average, the average Russian's disposable income probably tripled uh, during that time, largely because the, the price of oil uh, went up almost four times. Uh, that made it easier for Putin during his first two terms to deliver on the bargain that he made with the Russian people, to essentially let him run the political process, and he would assure that their lives got better, especially economically. It's been much more difficult for him to do that the second time around uh, over the last six years. And uh, uh, obviously the COVID crisis uh, and the, the general worsening of uh, economic fortunes around the world have uh, made it more difficult for the average Russian to see Putin as delivering on that economic bargain. So there's uh, a lot of question as to whether or not Putin will actually serve until 2036 when he'd be 83 years old. I personally don't think that he intends to do that, uh, but the changes in the Constitution now give him a bit more time, if he desires, to begin to develop some sort of succession plan, which is not at all clear uh, in Russia right now. The only certainty in Russia right now is Putin. So now sort of digging a bit deeper into that and into those developments, for our listeners who have not been following Russian domestic politics very closely, there have been some very extraordinary and deeply unsettling uh, circumstances in the past few months. The shocking, though not really surprising, poisoning of Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny is the most recent occurrence. Uh, Ambassador, many narratives have emerged out of this story. But before we get into your assessment on what actually occurred, who is Mr. Navalny and why is he such a crucial figure in Russia's political landscape? Well, Navalny Navalny is the Russian political figure uh, who probably has become the highest profile and the most visible person criticizing Putin and the system that Putin created to maintain power and order in Russia. He's an anti-corruption activist, uh, political figure. He's run for office. He never wins because the deck is stacked against him. But He's really a master of social media where he's published uh, very effective videos that expose corruption by Russian government figures. One in particular, which was devastating, uh, showed the uh, real estate holdings of then Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev after Putin came back as president. Medvedev became prime minister again, and Navalny very effectively exposed how Medvedev had it fantastically enriched himself uh, over the preceding six to eight years. So he's someone who's really been uh, a thorn in the side of the Kremlin and a thorn in the side of Putin for uh, 
for quite a while. So now that Mr. Navalny is recovering in Germany, if we dig into the details of what actually happened, what do you think? Do you think this was an assassination attempt directed by Vladimir Putin? Do you think this was an overzealous friend of the Kremlin? Or maybe was this just one of Navalny's enemies settling a score for his anti-corruption work? What do you think? Well, uh, despite the Kremlin's uh, vociferous denials that they had anything to do with this, uh, I think the record uh, over the past six to eight years makes it pretty clear that uh, this was in some way an officially inspired attack. Um, Whether President Putin ordered it directly uh, or whether it was done by uh, members of the security services who assumed that they were doing something that he would like. He's really he's created the kind of system in which these attacks take place regularly with impunity. Uh, the number of opposition politicians, opposition journalists who have been killed in Russia over the past 12, 14 years, uh, really over the 20 plus years, that uh, 20 years that Putin's been in power, uh, without uh, any real investigation or holding of anyone seriously to account for this, uh, is a very, very clear signal to Russian society and those in society who would oppose Putin that there is a price to be paid for this. So whether or not it was Putin personally uh, or it, it, it just kind of happened uh, organically, it's something that really is a consequence of the system that Putin has built inside the country. Absolutely. And I think it's important to kind of point out that, of course, there, there are these tactics a much more aggressive tactics like assassination attempts that we've seen in the past by the Kremlin and friends of the Kremlin. But of course, there are you know less aggressive actions like arrests. We've seen a flurry of arrests in the past six months of um, anti-Kremlin politicians, journalists, and other members of civil society. But I think one in particular really stands out, at least to me, and that is the arrest of the very uh, popular now former governor of Khabarovsk, uh, Sergei Fergal. And so uh, just to kind of give context, this region is about as far from Moscow as one could be, but there were massive protests both in that region and across Russia in solidarity uh, because of this arrest and these kind of trumped up murder charges from the early 2000s. So Ambassador, is, is the Kremlin losing its touch? Do they just not foresee the possibility of these, of these massive protests? Well, I think before uh, trying to answer that question, you have to really look carefully at what happened in Habarovsk. It's a very, very interesting case. Uh, Sergei Fergal, uh, the governor you mentioned, who uh, is now under arrest in Moscow, uh, was not really supposed to be governor. He was an opposition politician who, in 2018, the Kremlin arranged to be the equivalent of kind of a sparring partner for the Kremlin-backed candidate for governor. Uh, But a funny thing happened on the way to the uh, polling place for for many uh, of the residents in Habarovsk. They took a look at the two candidates and they saw that they really preferred Fergal to the Kremlin's candidate. And uh, this goes back to a kind of independent streak that uh, you see a lot in the Russian Far East. It's very, very far away from Moscow. 
and they would like to have a little more control over their own affairs. And they've been seeing uh, under President Putin over the last 12, 14 years, a steady diminishment of the independence and the, the sort of local regional powers that, that they have. And so in, in a way, it really kind of wasn't a surprise that um, Forgal won the election because the election was actually uh, conducted fairly. Uh, what happened after that was uh, the year after Fergal was elected in 2019, there was a second election uh, in which he didn't allow any fiddling around with the results, uh, any fraudulent to take place. And the Kremlin's candidate, the United Russia candidate, was soundly defeated. The Kremlin wasn't very happy about that. And by that point, they were keeping their eye very closely on Fergal. Uh, I think the straw that broke the camel's back for the Kremlin happened on July 1st with this uh, constitutional plebiscite that I mentioned, which uh, made it possible for, essentially was a referendum uh, on Putin's popularity. And the turnout in Khabarovsk, in that region, was the lowest of anywhere in Russia. And at that point, the handwriting was sort of on the wall that uh, Fergal uh, was going to be picked up, and he was picked up on murder charges for a murder that allegedly happened 15, 16 years earlier, leading many people to wonder why, uh, you know, how coincidental that it, uh, uh, the arrest happened right after you know, the Kremlin had reason to be unhappy with him. What I think surprised the Kremlin were the size and the strength of the local protests. Tens of thousands of people came out on the streets in Habarovsk to protest this. And I would say it's not really uh, probably evidence that the Kremlin is losing its touch or making a miscalculation uh, because Habarovsk is very, very far away. There really hasn't been a wave of protests supporting Fergal uh, around the country. It's been pretty much localized to Abarovsk. They're still going on, but the protests are diminishing in size, where before you had tens of thousands of people coming out. Now you have hundreds, maybe a thousand, two thousand. So the Kremlin is betting that uh, if it continues to kind of play hands off for a while, uh, it doesn't really push a heavy hand, which you know might boomerang and bring more people out uh, into the streets, that the uh, the protests will kind of fizzle out in the end. But it's a it's a very clear signal to the Kremlin, if uh, the Kremlin cares to pay attention to it, uh, that there is a great deal of latent unhappiness about the way things are being run in Russia and about the kind of uh, high-handedness that Putin and the Kremlin show, especially with regard to the regions. So now while Russia has been sort of seeing this domestic unrest, its neighbor, Belarus, is seemingly on the precipice of regime change. So now President Putin's support of Belarus, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has waned in recent years, but a reliable and undemocratic Belarus is crucial for the Kremlin. Rumors are now swirling that Putin will do what is necessary to ensure Lukashenko maintains power. And Putin has, of course, publicly voiced this support. Uh, 
But how do you see this situation? Would Russia actually allow Belarus to democratize? Will we see something reminiscent of Russia's invasion of Ukraine if this situation escalates further? No, I actually don't think so in this case. But Belarus is, is another sort of signal. Uh, it's another case in point. Uh, but, but let's back up a bit for the listeners and sort of describe uh, what, what happened in Belarus. Uh, the president of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, has been in power for 26 years now. He was uh, first elected in 1994, back, back when I was working in the Clinton administration in the National Security Council. Uh, and he's been reelected five times, and only that first election in uh, 1994 was considered free and fair. All the others have been very clearly manipulated to ensure that Lukashenko won. Uh, the latest presidential election, the one that took place on August 9th, was uh, for a sixth term for Lukashenko. And the official results came in, uh, Lukashenko winning 80%, and the main opposition candidate, a woman called uh, Tikhanovskaya, winning 10%. So 80% Lukashenko, 10% Tiganovskaya, even for Belarusians who are inured to rigged elections. This was really too much. And it resulted in uh, an explosion of popular protests uh, really throughout the country, mostly in Minsk, but in some other larger regional centers. But what was interesting about the protests, uh, unlike what we saw in Habarovsk, Unlike what we saw in the protests that took place in Moscow against Putin in 2011, the protesters were not largely young urban elites. Uh, the protesters in Belarus protesting Lukashenko's fraudulent election were factory workers. Factory workers actually went on strike. There was a lot of violence that was used to put down these uh, protests by Lukashenko and the Belarusian security forces. I mean, people were severely beaten, uh, raped while in custody. Uh, again, even by the standards of uh, what is, you know, often a fairly violent uh, region in terms of putting down protests, uh, this was uh, beyond the pale. And it only swelled the protests more. But the security services were a little bit less likely to try to beat up on uh, middle-aged factory workers whose worldview maybe coincided a bit more with theirs than uh, these young urban elites who were pro-Western, pro-reformists. So the Kremlin was watching all this very, very closely, obviously. Uh, They congratulated Lukashenko on his victory. Uh, The Chinese did as well. I think uh, no one else of consequence did. Uh, But the Kremlin was watching the protests very carefully because they were so big. Uh, And because, frankly, the violence was so remarkable. Uh, And they were watching to see if cracks were beginning to develop in the elite or among the military or security services. And they were watching to see how determined Lukashenko was to stay. Was he going to do everything he could to main power or was he kind of ready to go? Uh, So they watched this for a couple of weeks and they came to the conclusion that there really was not any great division uh, in the Belarusian elite, especially among the security services, uh, the military, 
state officials, which would be the key place to look for fishers. Uh, and they could also see that uh, Lukashenko, as in the past, was doubling down, uh, was not going to go, was not going to give in to these protests and was determined to stay in power. Uh, so seeing no division, the Kremlin made clear that they supported Lukashenko. Uh, Putin spoke out on this uh, earlier this week. Uh, he, uh, in a television interview, acknowledged that the protests had taken place, uh, but he called it an internal matter between the Belarusian people and the president. Um, it's an internal matter as long as the status quo, the geopolitical status quo in Belarus doesn't change. As long as Belarus maintains its pro-Russian inclination, uh, then the Kremlin would be willing to accept a change in leadership. They did something similar in Armenia a few years ago. But Armenia is not Belarus. Belarus is part of what Russia sees as really the Slavic heartland uh, that is part of a kind of greater Russia concept. And so uh, I think they will continue to keep a close eye on this. And by the way, it gives Putin a chance for an I told you so moment to Lukashenko. Lukashenko has been for the last three or four years sort of flirting with the West, uh, playing a card that perhaps he's not quite as close to Russia as the Russians would like. He pushed back against uh, President Putin's uh, efforts to push a union treaty between Belarus and Russia. And so Putin, in essence, is saying to uh, Lukashenko uh, privately, you can fool around with the West all you want, but when the chips are down, nobody came to your aid here. We're the only ones who are going to keep you in power. And so if, uh, and it's still an if, but if Lukashenko does maintain his hold on power, uh, he will be beholden to Putin uh, in a way that really I think doesn't sit well with him, certainly doesn't sit well with the uh, Belarusian people. Uh, I was looking at the press today and saw that Lukashenko gave an interview in which he admitted that uh, maybe he had overstayed his uh, his time in power a bit. And he, he's been calling for new elections, but new elections to take place after constitutional reforms are passed. Uh, this is clearly an effort for him to buy time uh, in hopes the protests will start to weaken, start to fizzle out. Uh, it's not clear that that's going to happen. The Belarusian opposition, most of the leaders of which are outside of the country, uh, are calling now for economic boycotts, for people to stop paying their taxes, stop paying any money that goes into state coffers. So we'll see uh, what happens. But uh, I think that Russia does not feel that it needs to intervene uh, militarily the way it did in uh, Ukraine, uh, simply because they think the situation is much more under control, under Lukashenko's control, uh, than what they saw in Ukraine in 2014. It would be very interesting to see how this whole situation plays out. And I mean, it's truly amazing to watch the Belarusian people um, be so brave and courageous in rising up against uh, President Lukashenko. So um, we could, you know, spend the entire podcast talking about 
Belarus. Uh, but I, I want to turn to Russia's engagements outside of its direct sphere, and particularly the Middle East. So Russian troops and Kremlin-supported mercenaries operate in Syria and Syria. Uh, and so, and Russia has had a foothold in the Middle East for a very, very long time. The Middle East is a crucial hub for its policy interventions. And so I'm just curious, what do you see as Russia's goals in the Middle East and how effective have their efforts been? Well, Russia's goals in the Middle East are uh, kind of at the strategic level, uh, very similar to uh, Russia's goals, the Kremlin's goals, Putin's goals for Russia writ large. And that is Russia wants to regain its seat at the head table internationally. Russia wants to be a decider. Russia wants to be in the room when the decisions are being made and contributing to those decisions, not being told about them afterwards. Um, it's interesting. Russia is, if you look at it, uh, the only country, the only major country that has good relations throughout the Middle East with all of the main players, uh, with the Gulf states, with Syria, obviously, with Iran. Uh, and even with Israel, the Russia, Russian relationship with Israel uh, is actually quite good. And this, is, this puts Russia in a very unique position geopolitically. Uh, in terms of the specific goals, obviously the strategic one is to regain Russia's lost role as a Middle East power broker. The Soviet Union was a major power broker in the Middle East through its support for uh, Palestinians, for uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, Iraq, for Iran. Uh, that was all lost when the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, and Russia under Putin has done a pretty fair job of clawing some of it back. So that really is number one. But the second, not far behind, Russia wants to deny the United States any role in political uh, machinations in the Middle East, which Russia sees leading only to one thing, and that is regime change. They see what happened to Saddam Hussein. They see what happened to uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And they're determined, uh, and they see what the policy of the Obama administration was vis-a-vis -vis Assad in Syria, also regime change. And they're determined that America will not be able to do this anymore. Um, the third goal I think that Russia sees for itself in the Middle East uh, is uh, kind of a military presence. Uh, Russia, over the last three or four years, has built up a pretty substantial air facility, air base, military air base in Syria called Hamanim. Uh, uh, and it has had uh, a naval facility in Syria on the Mediterranean coast at Tartus for some time now that they've been slowly enlarging. Can't really call it a base, uh, but it, in a sense, it is a platform for military operations. And Russia is determined that the part of Syria that these two facilities, installations are located in will remain in Russia-friendly hands. Right now, they are squarely in territory that's con uh, controlled by the Assad forces, uh, and Russia will do everything to make sure that it doesn't lose access 
to those two power projection platforms. Very, very important. Again, because Russia sees itself as a major player and major players have military installations outside of uh, their territorial borders. And probably the fourth goal is uh, one that's been a staple for Russia for a long time, and that's arms sales. Uh, it sells a lot of weapons to uh, all of the players uh, in the Middle East, uh, not so much the Israelis, but certainly the Syrians, certainly the Iranians, uh, certainly one side in the, the Libyan civil war that's going on now. Uh, and that gives Russia some income, but uh, the influence it buys them is really more important. So I'd say those are sort of the main uh, the mainstays of uh, Russia's goal and goals in the Middle East. And if you look at it uh, objectively, you have to say that they've been relatively successful in, uh, in achieving them over the last five or six years. Certainly since uh, Putin made his decision to uh, send forces into Syria in 2016. So looking at well, where this conversation has really taken is, I mean, we've discussed Belarus, the immediate sort of neighborhood that Russia has, and then Russia's actions in the Middle East. It almost seems as if Russia is really vying for its old Cold War position. But of course, right now in the current sort of geopolitical climate, it seems that China is arguably the more natural candidate for bipolarity with the United States. Uh, will contentious relations with the U.S. drive Russia and China in close? Sir, uh, do you think Russia has the military might, and uh, while China has the economic power, do you think their goals are truly aligned? Uh, no, I don't think they are, because uh, the uh, Chinese goal vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia is very clearly to maintain a good political relationship with uh, Moscow, with the Kremlin, and ensure uh, that they have long-term supply contracts for their natural resources, especially hydrocarbons, uh, that uh, the Chinese economy uh, desperately needs. It's very interesting if you look at uh, China and Russia in the border regions between the two countries. It's really kind of a mirror image uh, of, of uh, each other. On the Russian side, you have almost no people, uh, very sparsely populated, but rich in natural resources, hydrocarbons, diamonds, uh, gold, other precious metals, timber, uh, all things that the uh, Chinese need for their economic growth and very close. If you look on the Chinese side of the border, it's just the opposite. You have almost nothing but people, but very few resources. There are more Chinese living in the border regions of uh, with Russia, to include the region uh, that uh, borders Tabarovsk, which we were talking about. There are more Chinese living in that region, 220, 230 million Chinese, than there are in all of Russia. The population of Russia is about 145 million people. And the region that those 230 million Chinese are pushing up against has maybe eight or nine million people total. So in geostrategic terms, uh, equations like that tend to solve themselves in only one way over time. And Russia is really acutely aware of that. 
and banks on its ability to keep a good relationship with the Chinese, uh, largely through the relationship that Putin has built with President Xi, uh, to keep the Chinese kind of on side. Uh, a, a good example, frankly, is Belarus. Uh, the Belarusians, Lukashenko, had been courting the Chinese for quite some time, uh, again, as a way to kind of show uh, the Kremlin, show Moscow that it wasn't wholly dependent on Russia, that it could also uh, make deals with the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese really didn't see a whole lot that uh, was desirable for them. They don't have a lot of, Belarusians uh, don't have a lot of natural resources that the Chinese are interested in. Uh, but they were willing to sort of play that game until the uh, unrest started following the election, the fraudulent elections. And then the Chinese made it very, very clear to the Russians that we, you know, we are not going to play around in your backyard. Uh, at a time of crisis. That's the kind of relationship that Putin wants to have built with President Xi, where he can say essentially, uh, look, this is very, very important to me, what's happening in Belarus. And uh, I'd appreciate it if you could just back off a step or two. And she is quite willing to do that, doesn't cost him anything. He really has no stake in aggravating the uh, Russians right now, and he doesn't need to prove that China is bigger or stronger than Russia. I mean, Russia's main concern is uh, in not becoming a permanent junior partner to the Chinese. Uh, how that relates to U.S. relations with China and uh, U.S. relations with Russia, again, that could be a, its own podcast, but... Uh, I'll quote Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger once said that uh, the United States should aspire to have better relations with the Chinese and with the Russians bilaterally than the Russians and the Chinese have bilaterally between themselves. And right now we're about as far from that ideal as you can imagine. Uh, U.S. bilateral relations with Russia are terrible. They're a little bit better, but not great with China. And obviously, China and Russia right now uh, are as close as they've been, I would say, in the last uh, 15 to 20 years. So there's a lot of work to be done on that front. Certainly. And while you're ambassador, a quote-unquote reset was attempted by the Obama administration. Administration. But I think it's fair to say that relations have, of course, gotten poorer, as you've said. But both the United States and Russia have tried to find common ground on issues such as arms control. And uh, something you're very familiar with, New START. New START is set to expire in February. And not only have you negotiated these arms control agreements, but you were instrumental in the signing of New START as ambassador. Uh, could you tell our listeners why this treaty is so important? And what are the ramifications if this treaty does expire? Well, you're right. The New START Treaty, uh, I would say, was probably the signal achievement of the, uh, re the so-called reset in relations between Russia and the United States uh, during the first term of the Obama administration, the time that I, I was ambassador. Uh, we signed it in April 2010, and it really 
continues the reductions in nuclear forces on both sides that have been going on almost nonstop since Gorbachev and Reagan negotiated the first strategic arms reduction treaties back in the 1980s, the mid-1980s. It essentially would cut the nuclear arsenals of both sides by 30%. But more important than that, because the numbers are are quite low now. We're talking about strategic warheads down in the low 1,000s, bombers and missile launchers below 1,000. Still a lot of firepower, obviously, more than you'd ever want to see used, but definitely moving in the right direction. But even more important, I would argue, than the actual numerical cuts, the limitations that are being achieved. And the limitations that were and the cuts that were negotiated have uh, been met by both sides. Both sides have been implementing the cuts. And this gets to the important part of the treaty. The treaty contains data exchanges, notifications, inspections that allows both sides to avoid the kind of worst case assumptions at a very low cost that could otherwise lead to rising tensions. And at the same time, the existence of the treaty and especially the prolongation of the treaty, it's uh, set to expire February of next year, can be easily extended almost as easily as one can extend a lease uh, without any ratification on either side, simply by both presidents agreeing, signing a document to prolong it for another five years. That action, if we can get it to take place, would send a very powerful message to some of the would-be nuclear states around the world, to the North Koreas, to the Irans, that Russia and the United States, despite the fact that we disagree on so many different issues and on so many fronts, uh, we still maintain the strategic view that uh, nuclear arms control is important and that we, as the kind of stewards of uh, the nuclear arsenals on the face of the earth, but between Russia and the United States, we have 90% of the nuclear weapons, uh, that we're still in the process of disestablishing this as a, a real source of national power. And so if the North Koreans, if the Iranians want to push in the op- opposite direction, they're pushing against both of our country's desires. Uh, that's the reason why the, I think the New START Treaty absolutely has to be extended. The Trump administration, the Putin administration, President Putin, after having opposed the uh, extension of the treaty for quite some time, or at least linking it to things like missile defense uh, or new weapon systems that it didn't want uh, to be included. Putin now says, I'm ready to prolong the treaty, extend it as is. We'll include the new systems. We won't link it to missile defense. The Trump administration has said this treaty is has some value, but it really is a relic of the past. We need to have China as part of the equation from now on. Well, the Chinese uh, have less than 10% of the nuclear weapons on the face of the earth. And they simply are not interested in any kind of restriction or reduction regime at this time. It's a worthy goal strategically. We do need to negotiate 
with the Chinese on their nuclear stockpiles. But the, the route to that negotiation, I think, leads through the current New START treaty, not around it. So my hope is that uh, the negotiations that are going on now, the talks that are going on now between Russia and the United States will lead us to a meeting of the minds uh, in which both sides, Putin and Trump, are willing to sit down and do something that is very simple. It can be done in an afternoon. And uh, I would argue that the world will sleep a lot more soundly knowing that that treaty has been extended for another five years. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So. Uh, we will all be uh, waiting to see what actually happens with New Start. Hopefully, it will be extended so we can all sleep better. Um, but a final question, Ambassador, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, you you retired from government in 2012, and so uh, I'm I'm very curious what what does um, your life look like now? You know, for a former uh, distinguished ambassador, or, or you know, I know you're engaged in the U.S. Russia Foundation. Uh, we'd love to hear about what you're you're keeping up to. Well, I do a lot of foundation work, uh, which I obviously wasn't able to do when I was uh, still with the State Department. I I would say that I'm retired from uh, diplomatic service from the State Department, but I don't feel like I'm uh, <laughs> retired from work at all. Uh, I am the chairman of the U.S.-Russia Foundation, which continues to try to build cooperative projects between Russians and Americans in areas like uh, entrepreneurship, education. Uh, I'm also on the board of uh, something called the Rostropovich Vishnevskaya Foundation, an American foundation which was founded by the legendary Russian cellist, Mr. Rostropovich, before he passed away. And that foundation works very specifically on making vaccines available for infant children, uh, pneumococcal, for instance, uh, in parts of the world in which without the work of the uh, foundation, it'd be very, very difficult for uh, people to have access to these vaccines. So it's very gratifying. Uh, and I worked for a long time in the U.S. government. I'm very proud to serve the country. Uh, but the chance to work uh, for these nonprofits and uh, continue in a way what I was doing as a diplomat, but in a, in a slightly broader way from a different angle, I, I find very gratifying. And I'll probably stay involved in it uh, for as long as I can add value. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that you're still finding some meaningful work even after leaving the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, so thank you very much, Ambassador. We really appreciate your insights and analyses on these important issues. Uh, for everyone listening, uh, please check out what the ambassador is doing. Uh, as you said, he's doing a lot of fascinating and interesting and, of course, important work. Um, and then once again, uh, Ambassador, thank you very much. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review. Please make sure you follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod to get the latest updates. This has been the Burnbag Podcast. Podcast.